This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute. Richard joined me to delve deeply into the Australian economy. In particular, we looked at the experiences of Australian workers and businesses and how they've been affected by the coronavirus pandemic. We also look at how and when Australia might experience an economic recovery. And uh, I'm very pleased to have with me, joining me on the show, Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, which is based in Canberra. And we're going to be doing a deep dive into the Australian economy, where it stands at the moment and where to from here obviously all in the context of the coronavirus pandemic, which, uh, of course, Australia is not the only nation affected. I welcome Dr Richard Dennis back to the show. Hi there, Richard. Good morning and sorry for being the technical difficulty. (laughs) No worries. I'm taking them in my stride now. We're having them more often with the working from home stuff. Well, you're being very kind. It was my incompetence and I apologise to your listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Richard, and no worries at all. So good to get you on the phone to talk about this. And I know that for some people when they hear economics, it can be very confusing and there's a lot of language that gets thrown about in the media when discussing the economy that kind of can go over people's heads if this isn't their everyday focus. And uh, I wanted to talk about some of the elements that are really important that do affect everyone right now. And no doubt people already feel this um, in their own lives, so they can definitely relate. But first up, we saw Australia lock down its economy, essentially. It was still technically open. Cafes were offering takeaway, you know, essential services were open. But it was a massively huge closure that we saw lines down the street at Centrelink offices and huge numbers of people signing up for Job Seeker. And then, of course, slightly later on, we saw the Job Keeper package. So first up, I wanted to get your thoughts on the Job Keeper package, which has been touted as being a really important element to Australia's managing the fallout. What do you think first up about this Job Keeper subsidy, wage subsidy, and whether it is going to be an effective mechanism considering the sectors that it does leave out, like the tertiary education sector? Uh, look, big, big picture, you know, if we, if we go back to January, we, we lived in a country where the government was adamant the most important thing this year was to deliver a budget surplus. And after coronavirus hit, they were adamant that the last thing we needed was a wage subsidy. Well, fast forward a few months and this government's uh, announced, announced but not spent $200 billion in new spending measures. It has completely abandoned the importance of having a budget surplus and it's done a complete backflip on the need for a wage subsidy. Uh, now, my colleagues at the Centre for Future Work, the Australia Institute, have have been advocating for a wage subsidy and again that was heresy at the beginning of the year it's good that we have one now but is it a well-designed uh wage subsidy no uh it's very expensive which from a macroeconomic point of view that's a good thing what it is is the federal government pushing a lot of money into the economy at precisely the time that households are spending less 
uh, um, businesses are spending less and that we can export less. So spending a lot of money is a good thing, but we still need to think about where it's aimed and how it's targeted. And the decision to leave out a lot of casual workers, I, I just think was not just cruel, but bad policy design because casuals really were the first ones to get hit and helping them isn't just fair, it's a good way to pump money into the economy. Similarly, the decision to leave out uh, a lot of people on temporary visas, people who we invited to our country to, to, to work in our factories, to work in our restaurants, uh, they, they came here to work. We asked them to come here and... To, to then say, well, you've lost your job, but we're not going to help look after you. Again, I think it's cruel. Uh, and from a from a macroeconomic point of view, they're the front line. They're the people that get shed first. Uh, helping prop up their income is is a great way uh, to stimulate the economy. So, the the size of the job keeper package, the original one, but by original I mean the the original mm. estimate of size, 130 billion, uh, about right. But the shape of it, I think, is really quite wrong, especially leaving out those most vulnerable groups. Uh, and then, of course, we've found out over the weekend that uh, we're looking for a massive, we're looking at a massive underspend on the JobKeeper package, which is a real problem. That means the government's doing less to stimulate the economy than we thought. Yeah, by a substantial figure, isn't it? Really, I think a lot of people were surprised that you could be out by sixty billion. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen, Richard? Oh, look, we really still don't know. Uh, and 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 let's let's go up a level here. What we should all now know is that long-run economic forecasts are nonsense. Like, we can't even get a short-run forecast right for uptake of these. Yet we live in a world where we're told that we should ignore climate scientists because some economist says in 30 years' time GDP will be a bit smaller. Well, we now know that those forecasts are rubbish. <laughs> we, can't, we can't take a short-term projection to the bank. Why, why would we worry about a 30-year economic modelling projection? How did they get it so wrong? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we're, we're, we're blaming households for... Uh, sorry, we're blaming small businesses for, for, for filling out the form wrong. Um, I don't doubt that some people did fill out the form wrong, but uh, the Treasury was estimating the size of this program way before the form was designed, and this form was getting filled out for a month before anyone noticed these enormous errors in it. So... Luckily, uh, we did set up an oversight committee, a parliamentary oversight committee, uh, and Josh Reidenberg has been called to appear before that committee. Uh, and we now need to know a number of things. One, how was the original forecast so wrong? And two, entirely unrelated, how did it take so long to figure out that the amount of money being sent out was far less? Than, than we were told it was. Um, the forecast was wrong and the administration was bungled. They're separate mistakes. 
Mm. And if we think about the forecast, Treasury was estimating six and a half million Australians would be on this JobKeeper payment. Does that mean that Treasury was thinking and the government were thinking that, well, we need to be supporting this many, this proportion of Australians that we need to? Because at the moment it's standing at a bit over three million uh, Australians on this payment. Yes. Uh, look, to be honest, the, the the original size of the program never made a lot of sense. Uh, I'm going to have to throw a few numbers around here, but but let's think big picture. Um, worst case scenario, most economists thought maybe one or at worst two million people might lose their jobs as a result of this recession. And now one or two million people losing their jobs is enormous. The JobKeeper package, we were told, was designed to support 6 million jobs. Well, if if worst-case scenario is 2 million people lose their job and you're subsidising 6 million jobs, then at least two-thirds of that money isn't a wage subsidy, it's an employer subsidy. So... Mm. The six million number never made a lot of sense, so I'm not surprised that we're massively underspending on that because no economist thought six million people were going to lose their jobs. And, and similarly, if, if six million people worked in workplaces where revenue was falling by more than 30%, and that's the criteria you're most firms have to meet. You have to see revenue fall by 30% to be eligible. Uh, then if if half the workforce worked in companies where revenue fell by more than 30%, then the impact on GDP would have been a lot bigger than a 10% cut. So, again, let's get to the bottom of what Treasury's forecast was based on, but... Uh, a wage subsidy paid for half the workers in the country is when no one thinks half the workers were going to lose their jobs is actually an employer subsidy in large part. Yes, that is very interesting. And uh, and it's been interesting to see the types of responses employers have had to this. I remember when the shutdown started happening, there was almost in some businesses a knee-jerk reaction to just kind of cut casual hours almost instantly. And we did see those people losing their jobs very quickly, almost overnight. And some people saying, oh, well, JobKeeper came after. Now these people are going to be on JobSeeker, which is essentially what used to be called New Start. And I was looking at the figures that came out in mid-May about who had been claiming this job seeker allowance. And uh, in- interestingly, from March to April, there was a 51.5% increase in recipients of job seeker and youth allowance. But what I was quite surprised by, and I'd like to get your understanding on this, was that there was a nearly 100% increase in women aged 25 to 34 accessing welfare payments. What do you think about the kind of demographics that we've seen emerge about who's been hit and who's been receiving um, these job seeker payments? Yeah, look, it's it's uh, the the terrible reality of any recession, uh, and we're headed for a very big one. Um, the terrible reality is that we don't all share the pain evenly. Uh, again, just to throw a few numbers around, 
if if the main impact of a recession is that unemployment goes up by 10%, what that means is that 10% of the workforce pops 100% of the pain and a lot of us actually aren't affected at all. So recessions are incredibly unfair because while we talk about the impact on the economy or we talk about the impact on the unemployment rate, uh, the fact is the majority of Australians, probably the vast majority of Australians, uh, won't become unemployed, but a million or two million Australians are going to endure enormous financial and psychological pain. So so we have to look at the distribution. It, it, if we talk about the economy too much, if we talk about the unemployment rate too much, we miss the fact that some individuals are having a terrible time uh, and a lot of people are actually not. So who are these people that are having these, this terrible time? Well, we know that they came out of the retail sector, the hospitality sector, uh, the arts and the entertainment communities and industries. And those industries uh, rely disproportionately on younger people and disproportionately on women. So guess who gets hit hardest? Young people who are women. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't older people suffering disadvantage. Of course there are. And it doesn't mean there aren't some middle-aged people. Of course there are. We need to help people who need help. But but let's be clear, uh, the the group that's getting left out of JobKeeper, the more generous support are a bunch of casuals. They're more likely to be young and they're more likely to be female. Uh, so, yes, yeah, sadly, it's, it's quite predictable that we see a lot of uh, younger women surging in their claims for the lower, less generous job seeker payment. Uh, it's because we made them ineligible for the job keeper payment. Mm, yeah, and these are all decisions that government makes, usually with well, their yeah. eyes wide open. Well, you have to draw the line somewhere, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's what a ridiculous response that was mm-hmm. from the government. You know, why did you choose to consign this demographic group to poverty? Well, you've got to draw the line somewhere. Well, well that's exactly right. You do. Mm. So why did you choose to draw it there? Exactly. It's a statement of the obvious that lines need to be drawn uh, and we are none the wiser as to why they drew it in such a way that it would have such a terrible impact on younger workers and, and, and younger female workers in particular. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And to pick up on what you've been discussing about the fact that when we're talking about the economy and the unemployment rate, it can be very depersonalised. And it also can be very confusing as to what we're really talking about. And um, I just wanted to clarify for everyone who's listening and understand from you what we mean by the headline unemployment rate and what the real unemployment rate might be when these two kind of figures or predictions are being thrown about by Treasury last week in that select committee that has oversight over COVID-19. He was saying that the number of Australians out of work is potentially more like 15% given the headline unemployment rate doesn't truly represent the effect of JobKeeper. What does he mean by that? 
Oh, yeah. Look, settle in. <laughs> this will take a little while. Um, look, all, all statistics uh, have to be based on very careful definitions. Uh, radio rating statistics, uh, podcast download statistics and unemployment statistics. They all are based on very strict definitions and the definitions have to be stable over time if you want to compare what happened between one period and the next. So just big picture, it's not a conspiracy to hide unemployment that we have a very weird definition of it. We cooked up the definition back in the 1960s and about the only thing that hasn't changed in the Australian labour market since the 1960s is the definition of how we measure and define unemployment. So it's not a conspiracy, but it is a problem. It's a big problem. So the first thing to know is that when we talk about the unemployment rate, we're talking about a survey that's done by the Australian Bureau of Statistics every month where, where they interview around 30,000 households. That's a huge survey. Most polls in a newspaper might ask a 1,000 people a question. The ABS asks 30,000 households, nearly 60,000 people. It's a huge survey, but it's a survey. It's just a survey. And the 60 or so thousand people that get surveyed get asked a couple of questions in a particular order. And one of the questions is, did you work for more than one hour last week? If you worked for more than one hour last week, you were employed. And if you're employed, you can't be unemployed. The definition. So anyone who worked for more than an hour last week is employed, according to the official definition. The official definition doesn't say being employed means you've got enough money to live on. The official definition of unemployment doesn't mean you're happy with your hours. It's just a statistical definition. So people who worked for more than one hour, they're employed. And the people who didn't work for more than one hour get asked a bunch of follow-up questions, including, are you ready to start work straight away? And were you actively seeking work? Now, if you aren't ready to start work straight away because you, for example, would have to wind, line up some childcare for your kids, and if you are kind of keen to get a job but not ready to start instantly, we say you're not unemployed. And if you're not working and are ready to start, didn't bother looking for a job last week because you thought there's no chance of finding one, we say you're not unemployed. So the official definition of unemployed is didn't work for more than an hour, ready to start, actively seeking. Now, that tells us something interesting over time. It's an important number. But there's millions of people who are not statistically defined as unemployed by the Australian Bureau of Statistics who'd like a job who would like more hours uh, or uh, uh, would like a job and can't start instantly. So we've got to understand that the unemployment rate is just a very narrow definition. And when we ask broader questions like how many people need more work, we get a much bigger number than how many people are officially defined as unemployed.
And why do you think that that number, the, the second one you're talking about, doesn't really get utilised in public debates all that often? Is it because governments want to tout their economic credentials with the former? Uh, yeah, um, and while everyone knows, everyone inside sort of politics and economics knows the problems with using the, the narrow definition of unemployment, at least we can all agree what the problems are. Once I start saying, why don't we use this number instead, someone says, no, no, I've got a better different number to use. And then a third person says, I've got a better different number to use. So the, the one thing we can all agree with is that the unemployment rate is, you know, imperfect, but at least we all know what its imperfections are. But for describing what's happening in Australia in a time like this, it's, it's actually quite a useless quite a useless indicator, especially when we've got a new program like JobKeeper that's literally paying some people uh, to not work. So the unemployment rate, again, it's not a conspiracy, but it's really not helpful for describing what's happening in the Australian labour market today. Yeah, exactly. And so when we're looking at those people who are looking for work or on JobKeeper, um, that's a, a kind of, as we know, a temporary measure, a temporary solution in the government's mind. It has a very definite finish date based in legislation. And to them, that's it at the moment. That's what they say. And uh, then we'll just kind of go back to, to normal or we'll find another strategy you know, after that point. There isn't really a clear idea at this at this very moment what happens after these payments finish. What are your thoughts on that situation and the government's expectations of the economy and how the economy is meant to rebound? Yeah, look, I mean that's the really that's the scary part. The the government the government's rhetoric and the design of policies like JobKeeper uh, have all revolved around the idea that the economy will snap back, although I notice the Prime Minister has stopped using that phrase. So the, the design principle is the economy will snap back and that we'll have a so-called business-led recovery. There's no theoretical or historical reason to believe that will happen. Um, economies don't snap back they grind back slowly or they get dragged by the scruff of the neck by an interventionist government. And just fantasising that in a couple of months' time everything will snap back is the most dangerous decision that this government has made. So think of it this way. Unemployment is rising consumer spending is falling. So consumers aren't going to drag us out of this. Um, our, the world economy is slowing and our tourism industry and our education industry has been shut down. So exports aren't going to drag us out of this. The housing industry has new starts for housing has collapsed because people are afraid to start building something new in such an uncertain time. The housing isn't going to drag us out of this. And one thing that could drag us out of this is old-fashioned government spending, not just on concrete and construction, but on job creation in all sorts of industries. 
But the government at the moment, rather than saying, we will step in, we will fill the hole left by consumers and uh, our exports and our construction industry, rather than the government saying, we will step in, we will spend to fill that hole, the government is promising that it's about to cut spending. So, yeah, history and theory says that government needs to step in and fill that hole. Uh, it started off right, you know, with big numbers for JobKeeper, but that was always just going to be the beginning. And rather than double down on that and say, right, and here's what we're going to do next to keep this economy going for the next 12, 18 months, what they're actually doing is saying, well, done my bit, so... Let's see that business lead us out of this recovery. But why would a company expand a factory when its sales are falling? Why why would a company put on new staff when its sales are below the level they were at last year? It just doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't. And I was thinking there when you're mentioning the international factors and the situation, obviously, given this is a pandemic, it's on a global scale. It means that Australia is uh, struggling like everyone else to obviously varying degrees. Um, But there was one area that Australia tended to rely upon in the past, um, which is, of course, mining and iron ore and these kind of sectors to keep us up and um, still growing the economy is certainly in times of uh, crisis. And I was thinking about the US-China trade war and the ongoing and probably, I guess you could say, escalating tensions between Australia and China at the moment. What do you think about that factor, the international factor, particularly the key trading partners that we have, um, also kind of changing their forecasts? And in fact, uh, China saying that they will not forecast a GDP for the year. So that's a, a kind of another development. What do you think about Australia's connection with the rest of the world on a trade level and how that will affect our recovery? Yeah, it's a bad time for a trade war. Um, <laughs> look, well, big picture... You know, coal, coal mining in Australia employs less than half a percent of the population. 99.5% of Australians don't work in coal mining. Uh, iron ore, add all the whole mining industry together, uh, you get around 2% of the workforce. So I think we have to be careful thinking that somehow mining keeps us all employed or mining's the backbone of the economy. Look, the, the mining industry spends a lot of money on ads suggesting it is but you know the the top secret agency known as the australian bureau of statistics hides the data on their website that shows anyone that wants to look that 98 percent of us don't work in mining you know the the impact of foreign students not coming to australia will have a much big and which is an export Mm. just as iron ore is an export our education sector is an export earner uh, the, the drying up of foreign students will cost far more jobs uh, than, 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 the, than the mining industry. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a good time to have a trade war. And, you know, I really think that the, the Australian government has for quite some time taken, taken credit for the fact that China's economy was growing strongly and that a growing Chinese economy bought a lot of our raw materials. So it's interesting, when, when, when China's economy was growing fast, that's proof of great economic management in Australia. <laughs> 
But when China's economy slows down, oh, it's got nothing to do with us, you know, boo-hoo, the world's picking on us. So, uh, you know, you can't blame politicians for, for spinning things, but the, the, the incredible growth in China's economy in the last 20 years uh, had nothing to do with our decision-making, uh, but it led to enormous demand for resources that we happened to have. Um, that, was, that was a good time for us. So now, now we're seeing what the consequences of China's economy not growing are. Mm. But we, we shouldn't we shouldn't have taken credit for it in the past. And you know, it's beyond our control in the present. We we just have to make decisions that work for us. And we can't just sit back and wish wish that communist China was better at managing the economy. I mean, that's the ultimate irony in Australia that that the free marketeers in Australia uh, take credit for the economic success of the communists in China. <laughs> it is very ironic, given the current discussion and, um, yeah, I guess ostracisation of some of the uh, diplomats from China here in Australia. It is really interesting to watch. I wanted to also touch on something that's been... I mean, it's come up many times before, but in this situation we're in, it's become a very strong point, which is that renewable energy has always been an option for Australia, a, a sector to grow, that it has room for growth and, of course, would make a whole lot of sense. And we've seen the Climate Council uh, come out last week talking about how we should be focusing on renewables and obviously not about gas, which has been put forward by a number of people from that uh lobby to say that that's our way through this and um, I wondered what your thoughts were on energy and the renewable energy sector and how that could play a role or not in our economic recovery. Yeah look the Australia Institute published a paper oh, a month or so back now on on good criteria for evaluating all of the job creation projects that are being bandied around so not, not what's the best thing to spend money on, but what's actually the best way to decide what to spend money on. And, and, and our, our paper can be summarised as eight criteria in the paper, but in, in short, the key ones are we should focus on projects that are labour-intensive, that, that for every million dollars you spend, you're creating as many jobs as you can, because not all industries... Uh, create the same number of jobs per dollar spent. Uh, the aged care industry is very labour intensive. Uh, the, the, the gas and mining industry is very capital intensive. It just doesn't have many jobs. It's got a lot of machines, not a lot of jobs. So good for us, good stimulus spending is on labour intensive industries that are in the local communities experiencing lots of unemployment. And so, again, let's think about this. We've just laid off hundreds of thousands of workers in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane. I know. Let's build a gas pipeline in northwest Western Australia. OK? Not actually going to help any of the people that just lost their job. So let's evaluate these things, right? So labour-intensive in the local communities that matter and hopefully the things we spend the money on have lasting benefits, and that means that in 10 years' time, when we look at them, we'll go, oh, I'm glad we built that. I'll give you some examples. During the Great Depression, we built all those beautiful Art Deco ocean baths along the east coast of New South Wales. Every time you look at one and think, oh, Art Deco, aren't they nice? Think, yeah, built at the poorest time in Australian history. We actually had labour-intensive construction projects 
near the cities where the unemployment was, and a century later, we're still enjoying the benefits of those things. If you apply those criteria, comparing building a gas pipeline to putting solar panels on thousands of schools and community buildings, it's pretty obvious which one's more labour-intensive, near where the unemployed people are, that'll deliver lasting benefits. But no one likes it when I say this, but it's it's true. Said before, 98% of us don't work in mining. Maybe one, two percent of us might work in renewable energy one day. That leaves 96% of people that are never going to work in the mining industry and never going to work in the renewable energy industry. We need to, yes, of course we should spend money building and installing a lot of renewable energy right now. There's no reason not to. We need to do a lot more than that at the same time. So, yeah, go local, go go uh, go labour-intensive and go lasting benefits. They're the criteria we should use to evaluate every proposal that's put forward. Um, gas projects in northwestern Australia, capital-intensive, not many jobs, nowhere near the huge pool of unemployed people, and in 10 years' time, the world's going to want less fossil fuels, not more. Hard to think up a dumber project, really. <laughs> Couldn't agree more. It does sound like you're using a lot of logic there, Richard, which is scary. I just wanted to finish our chat talking about something that you have often talked about at the Australia Institute, which is superannuation um, and just how important it is. And one of the most controversial things at this time is the coalition government enabling people to apply to release funds from their superannuation retirement savings. Could you just share with us where we're at with that policy and how detrimental it might be to people who will not be getting the compound interest they would have had if they kept their super as it was? Yeah, so look, big picture, there were always hardship provisions for people accessing their superannuation because, frankly, it doesn't make a lot of sense for people that are, were living on a very meagre unemployment benefit or had a terminal illness to, to be saving for uh, you know, a better retirement that mm. they might never enjoy. So we've always had hardship provisions. What the government's done is make it a lot easier for people to access those and, you know, a lot of people are at, at uh, you know, causing a lot of problems for, for some super funds that all of a sudden people are making unexpected withdrawals. I don't have a philosophical problem with the existence of hardship provisions, but I think it's pretty rude that as a first port of call, we've, we've said to young casuals, we're going to exempt you from an expensive JobKeeper program we're going to provide you no real additional support whatsoever, but you can go and pull 10 grand out of your super if you want to. So we're, we're giving a lot of help to sole traders. We're giving a lot of help uh, to a lot of industries. We've deliberately, willfully drawn the line in such a way that a lot of young casuals miss out on quite generous support and then we've said to them, but you can go take the money out of your super. So uh, hardship provisions, people having access to super, it's always been there. It's not a terrible idea. But we created the hardship that's making those young people draw on their own savings 
when other groups are getting very large uh, amounts of support from the government. So we kind of create their hardship and we tell them that they can fund it themselves. Uh, and yes, that's going to have a very big impact on their uh, retirement income in the future. And again, I think the solution is is to not cause them so much hardship by, by, by extending JobKeeper and providing a lot more support. Mm. And anecdotally, there were a number of young people saying that their real estate agents were telling them that maybe they should consider taking that um, super out to pay their rent. So that was another kind of element to the hardship and the stress and strain that uh, people were under when there wasn't a very clear solution to people who felt they would not be able to uh, afford their rent. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, this is the point that we've, we've created the hardship <laughs> and, mm. and then given them access to the hardship provisions. Uh, I, I don't mind the existence of the hardship provisions. I just wish we weren't deliberately creating so much hardship. Yeah, yeah. The one positive thing I'm guessing is that childcare has become far more accessible and uh, subsidised at such a higher rate. Um, do you think that's a win from this situation? Uh, enormously. And, you know, just as I think the government will find it hard to uh, drop unemployment benefits back to their uh, obscene, cruel poverty levels that they were at, uh, I think the government, while it's at the moment, it's adamant that it will return to the previous policies on childcare. I, I think it's time that well, a, I think that'll be hard for them to do, uh, but b, I think the government, looking at the economic situation, hopefully will understand that this would, even if they have some bizarre long-term determination to to charge young parents for going to work now is not the time to, to revert to that. So, yes, I, I do think that's quite positive. Um, as I said, I think the government's done a number of things that you'd, you'd really hope and expect them to do, but what they don't, because they're convinced the economy's going to snap back, uh, because they believe there's some business-led recovery hiding under a rock that'll pop up in September, uh, the government still seems determined to say it'll cut job seeker, it'll cut job keeper, it'll go back to the old arrangements for childcare. I think they'll figure out in the coming months that that's not going to happen, and 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 hopefully that means they can start to give people a bit more certainty and provide um, the, the long-term support that the economy is going to need. Mm. Richard, thanks so much for your time today and your insights. It's been really valuable and I know I've understood the situation a lot better. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you and apologies for the beginning, but thanks for having me on. <laughs> no stress. Thanks very much, Richard. Yes, thanks. I've been speaking with Dr Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and we were just there doing a deep dive on the Australian economy and the effects of the coronavirus pandemic on jobs, workers, key sectors, and how we uh, get out of this situation, this economic hardship. And... Uh, future recession it's not I don't think we're technically in recession yet but it is on the horizon so stay tuned and I do hope that if you are experiencing hardship yourself you have um, the necessary supports and people around you to give you that support as well. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.